Our scripture reading this morning is from Jonah chapter 4, and it can be found on page 861 in the Old Testament in your pew Bible. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for him there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush and made it come over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared <coughs> excuse me. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, "It is better for me to die than to live." Jonah is reproved. But God said to Jonah, "Is it right for you to be angry about the bush?" And he said, "Yes, angry enough to die." Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nivena, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Susie. Join with me in a word of prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for this amazing story. We even give you thanks for its truth when it nudges us, when it pricks us, when it convicts us, so that all of those might be a part of our transformation by your grace. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. So we're in the third of a three series on Jonah. And if you haven't been able to be here for all the series, I want to just catch you up very quickly. Jonah is in the back end of the Old Testament. Jonah is what we call one of the 12 minor prophets. It's a terrible title. They weren't minor in any other way other than the fact that they have very short books. But their impact and importance to the people of faith, of, Jew of the Jewish faith, and the people of Israel was continually a critical a celebration, and so they weren't minor, but that's where we find them. So Jonah was one of the 12 minor prophets, and his story is very short. It's four chapters, and in the last two weeks, we've talked about how this is a story of call. It's a story of Jonah's call. It's a story that reminds us that all of us are called by God in large and small ways, in a variety of forms and fashions the calls come. But all of us are called for mission and purpose, for blessing and service. We also have talked about the fact that we have discovered, like Jonah, that at times the places where we encounter the holy power of God are in the most difficult parts of life. For Jonah, it was in the belly of this great fish. 
It was in the stinky place, and sometimes it's been in our stinky places of life that we have discovered that it's there actually where hope begins. And so if we find ourselves in a place where it just isn't well, where it stinks, it might be a sign that this is an opportunity for prayer and encounter with God to occur in ways we never knew before. The story has continued. Jonah is burped out of the whale, out of this great fish. He goes to Nineveh to preach very apathetically the message he was given. And we discover that all of Nineveh, 120,000 people who had turned their backs on God, now repented. And in their repentance, God, who had planned to wipe them off the face of the earth, showed mercy and chose not to do that. So it's a great story. It's a wonderful story of redemption. It's a story of God's mighty acts. And so this is where you would think the story would end. We'd all celebrate Jonah getting it right and God saving the people, but that's not what happened. Somebody kept writing. And they wrote what for us would be an unthinkable end of the story. Because we find here in the beginning of chapter 4, the true character of Jonah revealed. He is now mad at God. Because God has chosen to save those Ninevites. A group of people he didn't like to begin with. A group of people he knew deserved to be blown away. In fact, he says, that's exactly why I ran in the first place. Because I knew what kind of God you were. You're the kind of God who would forgive people like that. And I didn't want to be a part of that. And what he was afraid would happen has happened. Ninevites are saved. Ninevites are counted as worthy by God. And this is the worst thing possible as far as Jonah's concerned. It shows us that Jonah changed at several places in this story, but he was never transformed. You know how that you can change behavior for a while. You can even change the way you talk. You can become politically correct. But until you are transformed, the way you think, the way you see the world, the deepest wishes you really have don't change. And that was true for Jonah. He hadn't been transformed. Even in the belly of the whale, where he was the closest with God, it was only for a while. And so he's really upset. He's upset that God has acted the way, well, he expected God to act. And here at the end of this, what should be a powerfully wonderful story, the only thing he can bring to God is his man. Ever been mad at God? Over the years of my ministry, I have encountered, I cannot even begin to tell you how many moments in people's lives where folks have been so angry at God. Some of those moments have been powerful moments of life. Moments where the person who was so angry at God was pointing to situations that would almost break any of us. Moments of death, death of children, tragic death before we think life should have ended, 
people who've been betrayed, people who've lost things that are important to them in addition to other people, people who stand alongside those who are living in prolonged agony of all kinds and descriptions and those who are caught in the prolonged agony, those who are caught with addiction, those whose lives are destroyed by someone else's addiction, by injustice of all manners. All of these situations have created people who have in their hearts been so broken, so hurt, so mad at God. Every once in a while, they will come and talk to me, or I am going to them. They will share with me about their anger at God. Some of them have raged their anger at me because I was God's representative in the room. And some have almost whispered it for fear that giving breath to it, they would be struck by lightning in the moment. My response in almost all those situations has often gone something like this. It's okay to be mad at God. I say that probably selfishly because there are times I have been very angry at God too in many of these similar kinds of circumstances. It's why I'm blessed to have a key to the church so that I can come in here when you're not here and take God on. I've told folks it's okay to be angry at God because, well, God can take it. I mean, you can blow other people away with your anger. Some of us live with that fear. Because if I ever really got angry at you, that's a whole lot of mad coming down on somebody else. God can stand in the face of the most vile anger I could ever have, my best mad, and still stand with me. And of course, I often have counseled that to be mad at someone is to suggest one still has a relationship with them. You can't be mad at somebody you've completely cut out of your life, but if you're mad with somebody, there's a dynamic going on. And isn't it also true that usually we save our best mad for the people we say we love the most? Best friends out there? Marrieds? Significant others? Children, parents? We save our best mad for those relationships. Lord, when she gets mad at me, says, you know, at least it means I still love you. And I'm going, well, maybe you could just sort of lighten up on that a little bit. But still the fact is, we engage in that dynamic. And so being mad at God is to suggest that God is still there with you. But in Jonah's anger here, there's some lessons yet to be learned in addition to the truths I've just shared. See, Jonah's anger was brought about because of his personal preferences of life and his arrogance. He wanted to be in charge of his life. He wanted things to go the way he thought they ought to go. He wanted to be in charge of what was right and wrong. He wanted to be in charge of what God ought to do. Such anger is not uncommon in our lives either. 
Whenever there's change that comes in that affects the status quo that we love so well, we can become upset. I've never seen it here, but I've heard of other churches where that could happen. <laughs> where people get their nose bent out of joint and walk out of the church grumbling because somebody dared to change something that they really liked about the church. The way a particular room looked or was used, the way a particular service was functioned, the way they, they played their music or what the preachers wore or whatever it might be. That's not the way we've ever done it before. I don't like this. I see you. I mean, them. And people have had church battles. I mean, battles over things that matter, like carpet color. <laughs> Who gets to sleep in the parlor? Screens. I mean, whatever it might have been. Churches fight over it. In fact, I'm going to tell you this right now. And this is not about this place, but I know of churches that I'm in relationship with right now. Not this one. And I'm serious about that. I'm not kidding now. Who are so convinced that they'd rather keep their status quo, they would just as soon die. Then change what they have to do to reach out to people for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'm watching it. I'm watching people say, I'm going to hold on to the way we do it, and if they really want Jesus, they'll come and be like us. Huh. It happens. It happens also when we become uh, arrogant about the way we see anger in ourselves and in others. You know how this is? Whenever you do something wrong, it's a character flaw. Whenever I do something wrong, I've got a reason. Going down the highway and someone races by you and cuts in front of you and you know that they were born jerks. You're racing down the highway and get over fast because you've got to get there quickly. It's a whole different thing if it's you. You walk through Target and some parent is over there chastising their child and you know that those are just poor parents. You go to Target and your kids act up and what's well, just you got unruly children and you've got to let them have it. We have a way of justifying our behavior, our mad. I have a right to be mad. Get over yours. The truth is, our anger, sometimes very justified in the circumstances of life, can also be a symptom, a truth about our spiritual and emotional state of being. It might suggest at times that we want to see everything from our vantage point, and we want God to do the same. Philip Yancey, in his book, What is So Amazing About Grace, says it this way, Grace shocks us in what it offers. It's not truly of this world. It frightens us with what it does for sinners, you know, other sinners. Grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. We would not save, we, we would save the not so bad. But God, grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver 
and nothing to the receiver. It is given by God to those who don't deserve it, barely recognize it, and hardly appreciate it. And he writes, as I pondered this, and thought hit me in a very powerful way. God is more gracious than I. See, I don't mind God's grace when it's given to people that I think really ought to get it. But to those who have really screwed up, I think God ought to punish them a little longer. Unless, of course, it's me or somebody I know or love or thinks like I do, or worships like I do, or votes like I do, or, and so on the list goes. Jonah's mad at God, because God dared to be God, the God that Jonah knew. God didn't act the way Jonah wanted him to, and I'm going to guess that some of us in this room understand that. Amen? See, that's Jonah's problem, which I believe is exactly why chapter 4 is included in the book. I believe it's included for us to understand in the moments when we are mad at God, when we are mad at the ways of the world. We might be reminded, look at Jonah, and remember, God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of grace. And you don't get to pick over who. And it's this other little amazing factoid about the book of Jonah. Jonah is not the hero. God is. Which is also part of the problem for most of us. We keep thinking we're supposed to be the hero of our own lives, our own story. Never true to begin with. I want to share with you in closing about this Jonah book, this whole thing about the call of Jonah, this whole thing about finding God in the stinky places of life, and this whole truth about being mad at God. Jesus, in the Gospels, shows that he understands the scripture of his people. He understood Jewish scripture well. And he referred to several places of scripture in his teaching and speaking. And in the Gospels, there is only one of the 12 minor prophets mentioned. Only one. Not, not Micah or Zechariah or Malachi or Hosea or Joel, the ones you know more likely. Only one. Three times. Twice in Matthew, one in, eight, one in uh, Luke. Jonah. You see, Jesus was so captured by this story, too. Because in it, he found it's not about a whale. It's about a whole lot more. And this story could capture Jesus' attention. But maybe it's time for us to let this story capture ours as well. God be the glory for its message and for the transformation it does in our life today. Thanks be to God.